Open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. Romans 15 and verse 4. As you're doing that, I'll have some opening remarks. The title of today's message is Thanksgiving or Fearing. Thanksgiving or Fearing. We don't tend to do both simultaneously. We tend to do one or the other or to be somewhere in between. But the disposition the Lord would have us to put on is that of thanksgiving, not that of fearing. We are to be in a perpetual state of thanksgiving, not a perpetual state of fearing. Never before has our culture been so given over to fear as it has been these last several years. And I remind you once again that a spirit of thanksgiving is born out of faith. A spirit of complaining is born out of fear and unbelief. So we don't just fear. We tend to think of fear as like neutral, right? Fear is natural. It's neutral. Um, But fear leads to complaining or even worse to blaspheming our Lord. And so we must guard ourselves from fearing and we must submit our emotions and even the emotion of fear beneath the Lord. And the Lord commands that we should not fear certain things, and he commands that we should fear other things or persons, in particular himself. In a nutshell, you could sum it up as this, the Lord commands that we should fear nothing and no one other than himself and his judgment. Nothing and no one other than himself and his judgment. And in seeking to obey that and to put off the fear of other things, other Uh, potentialities, right? That potentiality, that thing may happen out there. We fear that thing that may happen and we can put ourselves in a perpetual state of phobia, even be diagnosed with said phobia and take medications for it. And we create phobias uh, out of the thin air. We conjure them up uh, one fear after another. And in that, we give ourselves over to unbelief. We're not believing in and trusting the God who is sovereign over all things. The God who works all things for the good of those who love Him and for His own glory in our lives. And so, thanksgiving or fearing. Thanksgiving or fearing. Sometimes we exercise thanksgiving or faith muscles, and sometimes we exercise complaining or unbelief muscles. And the more you exercise a muscle, the stronger it gets. And so restrict yourself from exercising the complaining and fearing and unbelieving muscles in your heart and mind, and deliberately compel yourself, deliberately hold yourself accountable like a New Year's resolution to instead exercise thanksgiving, exercise praise, exercise faith muscles. Most of you aren't Jewish this morning. I'm not Jewish personally. Uh, None of us are Moses. Nevertheless, uh, there's much we can learn from Moses and the Jews as our spiritual forefathers, and we'll be looking to them today. There's much we can learn about thanksgiving, faith, fear, and unbelief from Moses and Israel. These stories are compelling. These stories are moving. And we don't always put ourselves in the story and realize that we are very much like our forefathers. Fear mongers are hard at work in the evangelical Christian world. Fear mongers are hard at work in the 
non-Christian world. Fear mongers are hard at work in the press. Fear mongers are hard at work in the realm of government. What are we fearing? We're fearing Islamic Jihad. We're fearing Hamas. We're fearing paragliders and terrorists flying them. We're fearing war in Israel. We're fearing the kidnapping of old ladies and little children. We're fearing war in Ukraine. We're fearing nuclear war and the annihilation of New York City. We're fearing the COVID. We're fearing COVID-19. We're fearing pandemic. We're fearing coronavirus. We're fearing the vaccine. We're fearing vaccine effects. Uh, We're fearing inflation. We're fearing rising gas prices and rising prices on meat and milk and eggs and cheese and everything else. We're fearing the communist insurrection taking place in Washington, D.C. We're fearing communist China's growing threat to Taiwan and other nations, including our own. We're fearing a government-backed, weaponized, radical homosexual agenda to pervert our children and criminalize biblical morality, criminalize biblical parenting, and criminalize biblical preaching. We're fearing Antifa and BLM rioters burning down our cities in the coming election year. We're fearing election fraud and fearing election interference from tyrannical three-letter agencies. We fear the overthrow of our constitutional republic. We fear church closures. We fear a civil war. We fear the scorn of our neighbors for our non-compliance with the growing Antichrist agenda. We fear for the strength of the dollar. We fear for the future of our jobs. We fear for the futures of our children and our grandchildren. We fear standing up for Jesus, for His law, and for His gospel in obedience to our King, Jesus Christ. A great many fears have come upon us and are prevailing in our society in general and even in the church. Romans 15, verse 4. It says, Whatever things were written were written for our learning. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Whatever things were written before, the Old Testament, the historical account of God working with His people Israel, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And that's what I would have you to embrace today is hope, faith, fearlessness, resulting in a disposition of thanksgiving, not fearing, not complaining, not fretting. And so we will look to the things written before. We will look to the Old Testament, for lessons on hope, for lessons on faith, for lessons on obedience and victory over fear, over unbelief, over complaining and a complaining spirit. Psalm 95 with me, please, saints. Psalm 95. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. This was clearly written by a charismatic. Clearly. No, it's written by a spirit-filled psalmist. 
Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Our worship should not be dead. Our worship should not be like a funeral dirge. Our worship should be joyful. We are a thankful people. We are a joyful people. We are a hope-filled people. And sadly, sometimes people come in a spirit of religion, not in a spirit of faith, not in a spirit of hope, not in a spirit of victory, not in a spirit of joy. And they sing the great hymns of the faith and they, they sing even worship songs, chorus songs, um, reluctantly, some of these people. And you can sometimes hear them in churches or hear them online complaining about those songs were too peppy. Those songs were too joyful. Those songs were too repetitive. They repeated lines that were peppy and joyful too often. So I just stopped singing. I took a stand. And I think, wow, what kind of spirit is that? That's not a spirit-filled spirit, lowercase s. That is some other spirit. Now, there are songs that are flippant and goofy and, and too repetitive. But there's this song being sung in heaven. Holy, holy, holy. And the angels sing it again and again and again and again. It's rather limited in its word selection, but it's magnificent. And so let us not fret too much a bit of repetition and let us not fret at all. Joy and shouting joyfully, singing passionately to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. And so uh, the, the churches that tend to be psalm only don't tend to shout the psalms joyfully. They, they miss the message of the psalm. They reject any musical instruments. They reject any modern hymns. They reject certainly any modern choruses. And their psalm only, very little joy would be evidence. The joy is so deep, you can't see it. It's so deep within them. You can't see it outwardly. But it's there. It's there. It's to come out. It's supposed to come out. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. This is a call to worship. This is the disposition of faith. This is the disposition of salvation. This is the disposition of joy and hope and perpetual thanksgiving to the Lord. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Verse 3, for the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods, idols. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. In his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. You thought that was a modern day chorus, some of you, didn't you? No, that was Psalm 95. And it says, today, if you will hear his voice, there in verse 7, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So there's a contrast here. There's a corner being turned. There's a call to worship with joy. There's a call to worship with victory. There's a call to worship with shouts, with some volume. Oh, no. Can't have that. That's not reverent. Let us come before his presence with this kind of thanksgiving. And in contrast to that, Today, if you'll hear his voice, verse 8, do not harden your hearts 
as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So Psalm 95 opens up so positive. It's like you flip the corner, it came up heads and it's beautiful, it's positive, it's exciting. We're shouting with joy and with thanksgiving, a spirit of thanksgiving to our God, we're singing praises to Him. We're shouting joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is great and the great King above all gods. And in His hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are His also. The sea is His, for He made it. And His hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God. This great God is our God. This creator God is our God. This sovereign God is our God, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. The sheep of his hand, the people of his pasture. He provides for us. He's the God who provides. Um, we're, We're the sheep in his hand. He protects us. He'll not let us go. Oh, that we would worship with thanksgiving, with joy and true passion. And in stark contrast to that, do not be like this. We're warned, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of the trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. And our immediate response is, no, I'm not like that. That's not me. I would never behave that way. I would never respond to the Lord or to Moses like they did. That's not me. That's not my heart. I may not shout joyfully to him with psalms. I may not come into his presence with the passion of thanksgiving that he commands, but I'm not that other guy either. I'm not like those people. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like those people. We're tempted to publicly pray on a street corner somewhere, right? Wrong. For 40 years, verse 10, for 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said it's a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. Did they not see his ways? Oh yes. Verse 9, when your fathers tested me, they tried me though they saw my work. They saw my work and nevertheless they went astray. They saw my glory. They saw my power and nevertheless they went astray astray. They saw the ten plagues on Egypt, and nevertheless, they went astray. They saw the Red Sea parted, and nevertheless, they went astray. They saw the manna fall from heaven, and nevertheless, they went astray. And so they disdained these abundant graces of God. They disdained these abundant evidences of God's love for them and God's power manifest in his care of them, and they chose instead to focus on the hardships. They chose instead to focus on the many threats that were out there in the wilderness to their life and the lives of those whom they loved. They chose fear instead of faith, and thus they weren't full of thanksgiving, they were full of complaining. And you and I can so easily go down the same path. Choosing fear over faith. 
And thus we are moved from thanksgiving, a perpetual state of thanksgiving and joy. We're just so blessed. We just can't believe how blessed we are. We're just so thankful that the blessings the Lord has bestowed upon us, temporal, immediate, and eternal, a perpetual state of being blessed and being conscious of how blessed we are, and thus we're thankful because we're filled with faith and we see things clearly. In contrast, over on the fearful side, over on the unbelief side, we're full of fear because we're looking around at the things of this world that are passing away. We're looking at threats and potential threats, and most of them aren't real threats. They're just potential threats that will never be realized. And we're considering those threats more than we consider the promises of God. We're considering the lies of the devil more than we consider the truths of the Lord. We're considering uh, short-term issues far more than we're considering the eternal issues, the weightier matters. And thus we're compelled to harden our hearts. Notice verse 8, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of the trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. Some would say they were victims. They were victims. I mean, after all, they, they were slaves. You notice the crack in my voice there? They were slaves. There's the compassion. But those poor guys, they were slaves. Uh, and then they, they escaped slavery. And then their masters came after them to kill them. And it was so fearful. No, no doubt they had post-traumatic you know, stress disorder um, from this slavery and the threat of starvation as slaves as the Pharaoh took away their, their flesh pots and, and uh, uh, commanded that they make more bricks. And, and now they've escaped, but the Pharaoh's coming after them and they narrowly escaped that. It was only, whoo, man, this, this, this incredible miracle of God, a wall of water on the right, a wall of water on the left, dry land in between uh, that allowed them to escape. And then the judgment of God upon Pharaoh and his army as the waters came back and consumed them and they drowned with all their fierce chariots and weaponry. And then in the desert, oh, we're going to starve, we're going to starve. And the Lord brings the bread, but there's the fear of starvation, living in the fear of not having enough, right? We are so psychologized in our present day, we have become all too compassionate for a perpetual state of fear, a perpetual state of phobia. We just as, just as men and even women, strong-minded women, as well as strong-minded men, manly men, ought to put down that concept. No, we're not given over to fear. No, no. We're not shaking in our boots perpetually over every aspect of life. We're facing each day with courage. We're facing each day with faith, trusting in God's goodness and His mercy and His kindness and even the strength that the Lord has given us and the resources that he has given us to overcome hardships. And so do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. They're accountable for hardening their hearts. And the hardening of their hearts began with fear. And we think, well, well, we can't help but fear. Yes, you can actually. You either give yourself over to fear or you suppress the fear and replace it with faith. And you must do that day by day, hour by hour even to choose to trust the Lord and place your faith in Him over trusting the things of this world, trusting your own wisdom, trusting your own assessment of the threats that are coming for you. So, verse 10, or rather verse 9, they 
tried me, though they saw my work. For forty years I was greed with that generation, and said it is a people who go astray in their hearts. They go astray in their hearts. Therefore God was grieved with them. We tend to uh, relegate our hearts over to freedom. We just let our heart be free in today's society. So we fall in love with whoever we want willy-nilly, right? We tend to let our hearts run free with anxieties, and there's a, a massive industry built on top of that freedom of the heart, both a psychotropic drug industry as well as a psychology industry. You can either pay for an hour on the couch or pay for your prescription, or you can pay the bartender. We have a vast, vast industry out there built upon these phobias and fears we have given our hearts over to, the, over to. But the Lord says that we are to bring our hearts beneath King Jesus, bring our hearts beneath His Word. And so, though they saw my work for 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. Did they not see his ways? Did they not hear of his ways? Were they not taught his ways from the word of God, from Moses? Yes, indeed, they did see, they did know intellectually, and yet they would not receive. And in Many times we have seen them, we have experienced them in our past and vicariously through others, and we have heard them, but we do not bring them into our inmost being. We do not bring them into our heart and let them rule and reign our heart. The truths of God and the ways of God rule and reign in our hearts, our emotions, and in our minds. Our mind may have access to them, they may be technically in there, in our memory someplace, but they do not rule our emotions. And this is where we must allow the Word of God to renew not just our minds, but our hearts, our emotions, and bring both our minds and our emotions beneath the Lord to be gladly subject to Him, lest we be given over to fear rather than thanksgiving, lest we go the way of the rebellion as in Moses' day. Verse 11, because of this, So I swore in my wrath, says the Lord, they shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. And so they wanted rest. They wanted peace. They wanted security. And they rebelled against Moses, giving themselves over to fear. They rebelled against Moses and they rebelled against God. And remember, Moses was just God's spokesman. Thus saith the Lord. He's just the messenger. Follow me as I follow Yahweh. And they rebelled against the word of Yahweh. They rebelled against he who was delivering the word of Yahweh. They rebelled against Yahweh himself. Thus the Lord says, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Giving themselves over to fear, desiring rest, desiring to go back for the flesh pots of Egypt, desiring to find security in a dangerous world. They didn't find any of that. They found no rest. They found no security. They suffered for their sin. Look to Exodus chapter 3, and we'll find vital and precious lessons from the historic account that Psalm 95 is merely referencing. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, 
And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And so the angel of the Lord, this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, angel of the Lord appearing to Moses in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near to this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in, in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." This is a beautiful declaration of God's love for the people of Israel suffering in Egypt. He hears their cry because of their taskmasters, and he has come that they might be delivered. And he's calling Moses to go as his messenger that God might deliver his children, Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Who am I? What kind of response is that? A faith-filled response? A fearful response. It's a fearful response. And and thus, I tell you that to, to, of course, impugn Moses' character and to say, what a wretched sinner. No, I tell you that to say Moses was a common sinner like you and I. And Moses tragically responded to this glorious revelation of God the Son himself in a burning bush speaking to him audibly, saying, nah, I don't think that's a good plan, God. That's essentially what he's saying. I don't think that's a good plan, God. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not well suited for this. You've got the wrong guy. Oh, God, who is sovereign over all things, who is omniscient, all-knowing. You've got the wrong guy. Not a good plan. And that tends to be our response in one way or another. And so even as you look to the people who are going to rebel against Moses, first look to Moses. And he responds initially much like they later respond to him. Verse 11 again, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he, God, said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And so God kindly said, I will certainly be with you. And saints, we have that same promise that he will be 
with us. I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I will be with you. You will bring them out of Egypt. You will serve me on this mountain. Thus saith the Lord. Praise God. Now, if you're thinking toward the New Testament, you might realize we have similar precious promises given unto us. Similar commands even. There's a great untold number of elect sinners out there who will yet be saints, regenerated by the power of God, illuminated by the power of God, who will repent and will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And Jesus says, the same Jesus who spoke to Moses in that burning bush, says to us today, go therefore and make disciples. And so often we respond just like Moses, ah, you got the wrong guy. You got the wrong gal. This isn't going to work. Not a good plan. Not a good person. Not not a good idea. And the Lord Jesus responds in a very similar way. Lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Praise God. And so the similarities are thick in this experience of Moses and our own as the Lord calls us to follow Him and serve Him and go rescue His people who are crying out. They are languishing under the tyranny of sin and perishing. And He says, go to them, go to them, and I'll be with you. And even as He said to Moses, when you return to this mountain, you shall serve God here. He says to us, that his word will not return void. It will accomplish what he pleases. It will perform that for which he sent it. He says to us that not one of his sheep will be lost, that they will hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice and they come to me. And they hear his voice through his word being proclaimed through you and I. Praise be to God. All glory be to God. Verse 13, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And this is the great name of our God, the eternal self-existent one. I am. In The Greek in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus said, and again, this is Jesus speaking in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus said, Ego emi, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, He repeated the ego emi several times over, but one place in particular repeated it was in the garden when they came to arrest him. And they said, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he said, Ego emi, I am, the proper name the eternal name of Yahweh God, and they all fell down before him. So God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel. And here we get the the plan. Here's the plan. It's going to unfold. Now, as a side note, as a side note, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire in the midst of the bush. It's the angel of the Lord who's speaking to him. And then the angel of the Lord is called repeatedly, God, 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 
God, um, the deity of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. It's beautiful. So here's the plan. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, verse 15, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the plan. I've heard you. I've come to rescue you. I'm going to give you the land of these peoples, a land flowing with milk and honey. Is that not a good plan? That is a good plan. The Lord's giving us a land flowing with milk and honey, saints. He's given us all the land. He's given us a new heavens and new earth in which only righteousness dwells. We will have all the land. And there will be abundance in it. There will be no more death. No more tears. Verse 18. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. Not only will they go, they will pillage. They will plunder. They will take the wealth of Egypt with them. Verse 22. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of, of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. You shall plunder them. They don't just let them go. They take their wealth with them when they go. That's the effect of the ten plagues upon the Egyptians. They were humbled and they wanted to see them gone and maybe even genuinely wanted to bless them. Their God was offended. We better bless them to try to remove this offense we have brought upon ourselves that we might survive. Skip to Exodus chapter 4, verse 1, next chapter. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose, but suppose, anyone ever respond like this? So you initially say, No, Lord, I don't think it's a good idea. The Lord says, Yes, it's a very good idea. It's going to happen. Here's how it's going to happen. And, uh, and then you say, uh, Well, suppose. So this is one of the many imaginary horribles, right, that we conjure up. Here's a phobia that he's going to conjure up. Suppose, then Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. And we did the same thing to God. Suppose Portlanders will not believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. 
Well, they don't have to believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. You believe faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. You believe it. And those whom He's calling to Himself will hear the Word of God and they will come. Well, suppose they don't believe it's the Word of God when I proclaim it to them. Well, of course they're not going to believe it's the Word of God when you proclaim it to them. Until what? Until they're regenerated. And yet, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says that it's through not incorruptible things, but the incorruptible, the Word of God, that they will be born again. And so the Lord is pleased to use the ministry of His Word to regenerate the dead. And He illumines their eyes to see the glorious truths of Holy Scripture, the truth of who God is and how He saves sinners through His Son, fully God, fully man, crucified for sinners, buried and resurrected on the third day by grace alone, through faith alone, through the ministry of the Scriptures. So let us put all of our supposes to death. Suppose they're ardent atheists. Suppose they're agnostics. Suppose they're Hindus. Suppose they're dedicated Muslims. Suppose... Put it to death. Stop supposing things against God, against His truth, against His sovereignty, against the sufficiency of Scripture. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me, nor listen to my voice. The same God that sent Moses with ten plagues is the God who sends you and I. The same God who parted the Red Sea is the God who sends you and I. The same God who brought bread from heaven in the form of manna is the God who provides for you and I. But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Well, they will say that. They will say that. Up until the point they repent. Up until the point that they set you free, Israel, and they lavish all their gold and silver upon you. (laughs) They'll say it right up to that point. But the God, omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere present, has said these things will most certainly come to pass. And so, these things will most certainly come to pass, Moses and all the rest of us too. So we can put all our supposes to rest, or even better, to death. Exodus 4 Verse 2, so the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a rod. And he said, cast it to the ground. So he cast it to the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Verse 6, furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put it in his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it will be, if they do not believe you nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent. (laughs) This is the third time. So the first time, the first time, 
He responds saying, um, uh, verse 11 in chapter 3, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? So who am I? I'm not qualified for this. The second time he says, but suppose they will not believe or listen to my voice. And then the third time, after the Lord gives them these three supernatural miracles to show them, the third time Moses responds and says, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Oh, saints, Moses is so much like you and I. He's so much like you and I. Does God's work depend upon your eloquence or on your strength? No. It does not. He commands us to go. He commands us to speak. And therefore we go and we speak that which he has commanded. Verse 11, so the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seen, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. But he said, oh, my Lord, please sin by the hand of whomever else you may send. Isn't there some ministry I could fund? Some go rescue the Jews ministry I could fund? Oh, Lord, couldn't I pay someone else to do this work? Couldn't I pay some agency? Oh, Moses is just like so many modern day pastors today. whom The Lord says, do the work of the evangelist. The Lord says, go, therefore, and make disciples. The Lord says, preach from the housetops what you hear in the ear. And they say, well, well, we'll hire some professionals for this. We'll pay Luis Palau to do this or Billy Graham to do this or some missionary to do this in some foreign land. But we won't go to rescue the perishing whose cries are coming up to the Lord. We won't do it tragically. And we have excuse after excuse after excuse. The Lord says to us, did I not give you my Holy Spirit? Does he not dwell within you? Will he not empower you for this great work? Will he not empower those who hear to repent and believe if they're numbered amongst my elect? He says, did I not give you the sign of my own son? Not the sign of Jonah even. Not, not Isaiah 53 merely even. Not the sign of, of uh, the serpent's head being crushed by the heel that he had struck in the Evangelion of the Genesis account. But I have given you my own son upon a cross. Will you not go and preach him? I've given you him resurrected and ascended on high. Will you not go preach him? I've given you Genesis through Revelation. Will you not go preach it? I've given you 2,000 years of church history where the church has been despised and rejected and yet it circumnavigated the world and the gospel has prevailed for countless millions to come to repentance and faith. All of them unlikely. All of them literally impossible. For it's impossible for any man or woman to repent in and of themselves and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Have I not given you all of this? And yet we would still respond like Moses. Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before you nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. And God says to us, as he said to Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. 
But he said, oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. And God is so gracious. He's so gracious. You would think he'd say, you know, I'm done with you, Moses. I'm done with you. I'm going to go to your brother Aaron. Or I'm going to find someone else. But I'm done with you. Maybe I'll just go to Miriam just to rebuke you both. I'll use a woman. I'll use your sister just to rebuke you both. But now he chose Moses and he did not let Moses go. Moses would be a trumpet for the Lord. He would be a prophet for the Lord. He would be a commander on the Lord's field of battle. He would hold that staff high as the armies of the Lord marched forth to battle because the Lord had determined it. He was going to bring it to pass. And the Lord does not glory in calling someone who is eloquent. He does not glory in calling someone who's naturally strong. He glories in calling the weak. He glories in calling the foolish and making them strong and making them wise so that he receives all the glory. In Exodus 4 verse 27, it says, And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and they had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. So he went, he obeyed after much resistance. He obeyed and he did the signs and the people believed and they heard the word of the Lord that he had visited the children of Israel, that he looked upon their affliction and they were compelled to bow their heads and worship. Good start. It's going smashingly, Moses. That ministry you've got going on down there. I mean, there's a revival in Israel. It's going great. Good job. Doing all glory to God. And it starts out great. But it's going to get rough. It's going to get rough. You might call this the honeymoon period of ministry, right? Everyone's excited. The Lord's come to redeem us. This is great. We're going to follow Moses on out of here. Look to Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you as a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. And you shall speak all that I command you. And Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs, my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So the Lord is determined to harden Pharaoh's heart. The Lord is determined to rescue Israel out through great supernatural judgments that he would pour on Israel, or excuse me, on Egypt, so that God gets all the glory that belongs to his holy name. Verse 6 Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And that removes one more excuse we might have. I'm so old. I'm so old. You know, I'm middle aged now. I'm so old. You know, I'm retired now. I'm I'm in the geriatric, you know, 
section. I'm so old. You know, I, I can park in the handicap section. I, I'm so old. You know, I'm, I'm uh, nearly 40, slowing up these days. I'm so young. I don't know enough. How much did Moses know? The Lord revealed himself to him. The Lord gave him the words to say. And he will do the same for us. And we never retire from the Lord's service until he calls us to glory. We never retire. Exodus 13. Exodus 13, verse 17. Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, this is ten plagues later, that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And so the Lord knew their hearts. He knew their hearts were fickle. He knew even though they started with worship and praise, bowing their heads and worshiping in Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, that they would be tempted to change their minds when they saw war and return to Egypt. Therefore, he leads them in an unlikely way. In Exodus 14, verse 10, it says, And when Pharaoh drew near, so Pharaoh's chasing them. Pharaoh is coming to destroy them. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we have told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And so now, when they face their first threat, Pharaoh is, is coming to destroy them. Pharaoh is nearing them. They're full of fear. It says they cry out to the Lord, but I don't think they cried out in faith to the Lord. Because the very next thing they did was to cry out against Moses and say, essentially, why have you hated us so? Why have you so foolishly brought us out here to die? What were you thinking, Moses? What were you thinking? This is not a good plan. And if Moses reverted back to his initial heart, he might have said, ah, I'm with you. I told God. And you see some pastors doing that today. And you see some fathers doing that. You see some mothers doing that. When some portion of the body of Christ or some members of the family cry out like Israel and say, hey, this is not a good plan. There's hardships here. There are real threats here. You see the pastor capitulating, maybe even going totally apostate. You see mother and father capitulating, maybe even going totally apostate. If you can't beat them, you join them. You join the world and you join the church that is fearful and responding just like Israel and wanting to make peace with the world. And suddenly homosexuality isn't sin anymore. And suddenly men don't have to be men anymore. They can become women. And you find people retreating from truths, precious and clear truths. Out of fear. But praise God, Moses did not return to his former response of fear. The Lord strengthened him, and he stood res resolute against their fears. 
So they cried out and said to Moses, Because there are no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Now for the sake of brevity, we skipped over the portion between Exodus 4.31, where they say, uh, where they respond initially, bowing their heads and worshiping. Oh, this is awesome. The Lord has sent a redeemer. He has sent Moses. He's going to lead us out. But you see, the details were too much for them. They liked the surface level truth of redeemer, freedom, no more slavery to Egypt. But they didn't like the details. There will be hardship. We will have to exercise faith. We'll have to face threat after threat and trust God and follow God's servant Moses. They didn't like the details that required the exercise of faith. And instead, they descended into fear and complaining, complaining against Moses. Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? It would have been better to serve the Egyptians, then we should die in the wilderness. Verse 13, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel should go and dry land through the midst of the sea. And indeed, I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians that they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God, that's still who Moses is speaking to, God, the angel of God, Jesus, the messenger of God, the pre-incarnate son of God. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all night. So God supernaturally protected them. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. And he made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right and on their left. This was not a natural occurrence. There was not some earthquake somewhere that opened some great crack, and thus the waters flowed into that sea. It was not some uh, super moon cycle, and uh, thus the, the moon swept the water away in some great tidal pool elsewhere. No, this is a supernatural Miracle of God, a wall of water on the right and on their left, says verse 22. Verse 23, And the Egyptians pursued them and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And I don't know if there was ever you know, a greater act of madness than that. Ten plagues. All right, let them go. You know what? I don't think so. Let's go kill them, boys. Mount up! They mount up and they come to this pillar of fire and 
and darkness and, and what is this supernatural thing? I don't know, but we can't get to him. But you, as soon as that's gone, we're going to get them, boys. We're going to get them. And then that's gone. Hey, Israel's gone. Where did they go? Oh, they went through the Red Sea on that dry ground with the wall of water on the right and the left. Hey, I know. Let's get them. Now, that's nuts. That's nuts. But that's what they did. That's what they did. And so they went to the midst of the Red Sea. Verse 24, Now it came to pass in the morning watch, the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of Egyptians, and he took off their chariot wheels. So they drove them with difficulty, and the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand on their, and on their left. It's repeated again at the end of the account. Verse 30, So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord. That's so healthy. That's so healthy. We fear the Lord, not men. They feared the Lord. And believed the Lord and his servant Moses. They feared the Lord, they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of God. We move far from that and we begin to fear everything else. And then we begin to disbelieve God. The people feared the Lord. They believed the Lord and his servant Moses. The fear of God was strong in them. Faith in God is strong in them. Faith in God's prophet is strong in them. Exodus 15, verses 1 through 25, what do we find? Faith and thanksgiving soar, soar for about five minutes. Verse 1, then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army is cast into the sea. His chosen captains are all drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And they go on and on to praise God. Verse 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. And you have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. And the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. 
by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Verse 20, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord! For he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Magnificent. Magnificent. They are praising the Lord. Their faith is high. Their fear of God is high. Their confidence that the rest of the nations, the nations that God has foretold, he will give them their land, the land flowing milk and honey, they will tremble before our God and his greatness. And then we come to verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Merah, they could not drink the waters of Merah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Merah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. They complained. The complaining begins just days later. Chapter 16, verse 1. And they journeyed Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. 15th day, second month. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They complained about water. They complained about food. The Lord provided pure water. The Lord is going to provide food. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven. He's going to give them manna from heaven. Verse 11, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I've heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And so he brought quail and fed them with quail. And he's going to bring them bread. Manna, verse 31. The house of Israel called its name manna. It was like white coriander seed. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Verse 35. And the children of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they came to the inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. In Exodus, in Exodus chapter 17. Verse 1, it says, Then the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. And the people contended with Moses, saying, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children 
and our livestock with thirst. Over and over again, they complain. Not enough water, not enough food, and why have you brought us out here to kill us? They impugn Moses' character. Why have you brought us out here to kill us? And they say, this is not good. It would have been better that we stayed back in Egypt even if we died there. We would have died with our flesh pots and our Egyptian bread. And the story continues in that manner. And we find them crying out against Moses and crying out against Moses again and again until finally in Numbers chapter 11, verse 1, Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned amongst them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses. When Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So now the Lord is directly chastening them with supernatural judgment because they continue to cry out against Moses and now the Lord. Verse 3, So he called the name of the place Tibera, because the fire of the Lord burned amongst them. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? They wept, don't you see? They're fearful. They're hungry. They're weeping. They're giving themselves over to a spirit of unbelief and to fear. And they're weeping. They're so intensely fearful. Verse 5 We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlics. But now our whole being is dried up and there's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. We don't have our onions and our melons and our fish. All we have is this supernatural bread from God every day. All we have is this stinking manna. That's really what they were saying. We want more than God's provision, this perfect heavenly bread that's keeping us alive. We're not satisfied with that. We want to go back to Egypt. We want to be slaves and have our fish and our onions and our melons. Oh, saints, so often the church responds to the Lord today just as Israel responded to the Lord historically. Verse 10, Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, Everyone at the door of his tent. Are they starving, I ask you? They're not. They're well fed with the bread of heaven, manna, which is a picture of what we know from the New Testament, Jesus Christ. And yet they are totally dissatisfied. They have given themselves completely over to fear and the complaints are flowing endlessly. And at first they're against Moses and then they come directly against God. And God begins to judge them. Continually chastening his people that they might stop fearing the lack of water and stop fearing the lack of food. For the Lord has shown himself faithful. He has provided for them repeatedly and that they would fear God alone and return to that spirit of worship they had initially in chapter 4 and they had again after the parting of the Red Sea. And tragically, They press on in that spirit of unbelief to their own destruction until finally the Lord says this in Numbers 14. 
Verse 26, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken to my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. And thus their wandering to the wilderness began until every adult died. Why? For their unbelief, their fear, and their complaining and blaspheming of God. It began as fear and unbelief. It graduated to complaining against Moses. And finally it graduated to complaints against and blasphemy against their God. And thus he didn't deem them worthy of the promised land. They would not enter into his rest. They would never know the land flowing with milk and honey. That song they sang, those those Canaanites, they're going to fear. They're going to hear about our God and how awesome he is. Look at him, he's awesome. And they're going to fear. And instead, they left that disposition of faith that they had only spuriously, only for a moment. And they feared the trials of this world And they never met the Canaanites face to face. They died in the wilderness and their descendants led by Joshua and Caleb would have to go conquer the Canaanites. Oh, there's so much more story. We've gone long. But saints, there's so many instructions there for us, so much to learn for us that we might give ourselves over to thanksgiving and never give ourselves over to fear. Every time you feel yourself getting fearful, you need to stop and push that aside and pray. Replace fear with faith. Pray to the Lord that He would strengthen you and give you courage and give you confidence in Him, confidence, certainty in who your God is and what His plan is, and that He will bring it to pass. Don't let your hearts fall prey to anxiety to phobia, to fear, to the threats real and perceived. Do we all need food? Yes. Do we all need water? Yes. What do we have? We have the manna of heaven, the bread of Christ. We have the water of heaven, Jesus Christ. He is living water. He is living bread. We have the hope of heaven. And we have fair confidence that the Lord will provide all that we need in this world. And should He not, then we have the testimony of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even should you throw us into that fiery furnace, if the Lord wills it, we will survive. If He does not, so be it. We will go to be with Him in glory. But we are not going to disobey Him or blaspheme Him or fear you, O Nebuchadnezzar. Thanksgiving or fearing. By the grace of God, let us choose thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, Lord, that we would gaze upon our forefathers, we gaze upon Israel before us and Moses before them and see their failings, for they are our failings. We are prone to wander, Lord, prone to leave the God we love. We are prone to unbelief. We are prone to fear. We are prone to anxiety. We're prone, Lord, to spreading those fears and anxieties. We're prone to disobedience. We're prone to saying, send someone else. We're prone to creating an endless number of imagined threats. Lord, may we 
Fear you alone and no other. And be set free, Father, from slavery to fear in our hearts and minds. And may we be joyful, do lost slaves of Christ, serving him and obeying him with joy and perpetual thanksgiving. We pray it in his mighty name, his matchless name, his glorious name. Amen.